Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Verses 6 through 9, Revelation 19, 6 through 9. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Let's pray. Lord God, as we approach this grand and glorious subject of glorified humanity, the redeemed with Christ, and the triune God, and the saints and the holy angels forever and ever in that perfect world of love, in beatific union and ecstasy and spiritual marriage with the Son of God, help us to stammer a few words of this apex of the pinnacle of thy work, thy amazing saving work in thy people to bring them to be with thee where thou art. Help us in preaching in these moments and may every true child of God in this audience and listening online in this message be lifted up in their soul in these moments into heavenly places to know by anticipation something of that great joy and have an earnest longing to be with Christ forever and forever. Oh, to be sin-free in Emmanuel's land. Oh, to know him better and better. Oh, to be with him. Oh, to gaze upon his face forever and be ravished with delight in Emmanuel. Lord, bless us in these moments, we pray, with a sense of thyself. Be in this place, in this hour, and lift up thy people to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I just want to say it's been wonderful to be here at this conference with you. And you've been so gracious to my wife and to me. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful conference. And I'm hoping that I'm saving the best wine to last because the subject given me right now is altogether glorious. I'm altogether unfit to bring you this message. But I want to lift up my own soul and by God's grace your soul into heavenly places to sit with Christ Jesus. The subject before us is glorified humanity. And that subject, talking about heaven, could fill a thousand-page book. Some people say, well, there's very little about heaven in the Bible. There's so much we don't know. Well, yes, there's things we don't know. But we know all the main things, and actually there's quite a bit about heaven in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation. And there's so many directions we could go with in this topic. We could talk about heaven as a world of life, 
teeming with life, leaving behind every evil thing, all sin, and receiving life abundant. Or we could have a whole talk on heaven as a world of glorious love and friendship, the friendship among the triune persons with each other and with the saints and with the angels and the friendship of the saints with the triune God and with the angels or the friendship of the angels with the triune God and the saints. And explain what Jonathan Edwards said in his beautiful sermon, heaven, a world of love. Or... We could talk about all the activities in heaven. Heaven is a place not only of glorious life and glorious love, but also glorious rest and glorious service, serving the Lamb who sits on the throne. I've chosen to go to the apex. I want to speak to you about heaven as a glorious Christ-centered place and have the spotlight be on Jesus and your relationship with him in heaven. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed how often the Bible speaks of going to be with Jesus rather than of going to heaven? Have you ever wondered why? Well, you see, Dying and going to be with Jesus is the sum and substance of heaven's glory. Samuel Rutherford said, suppose that our Lord would manifest his art and make ten thousands of heavens of good and glorious things and of new joys devised out of the deep of infinite wisdom, he could not make anything like Christ. Rutherford also said, if a thousand heavens were piled on top of one another, the centerpiece of them all would be Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible speaks more about going to be with Jesus because Jesus and heaven are nearly synonyms. He is the essence of heaven. To be with him, to gaze upon his face, to love him forever is the centrality of the heavenly experience of glorified humanity. Now, there are several reasons why heaven is so centered upon our glorious Savior. Reason number one is that no one can get there without Christ's saving work in them. I stand upon his merit, I know no other stand, not e'en where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The second reason why heaven is so Christ-centered is because in heaven, faith in Christ will become sight of Christ. Peter describes our present situation when he says, we love a Christ whom we have not seen, in whom though you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Faith in the unseen Christ will be rewarded by the joy of gazing upon the seen Christ. Thine eyes, says Isaiah, shall see the King in his beauty. Third, heaven is Christ-centered because in heaven, every believer will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. We who believe shall be like him, 1 John 3, 2 says. And he shall be the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8, 29. What bliss it will be, what bliss it will be to be without sin and to reflect Christ so completely that it will be impossible to not be like him, impossible to speak a word, to think a thought, to engage in any action in an unchristlike manner. Impossible not to be as holy as Christ himself. And four, heaven is focused on Christ because his glory will always shine there and his praises will never grow old there. In fact, 
There's no need for any light in heaven because Christ is the light who will lighten up the, the totality of heavenly glory. Revelation 21, 23, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. But there's a fifth reason why heaven is so Christ-centered, an all too often forgotten reason, a reason that should be preached on a hundred times more than it is, and that is this. That you, if you're a true believer and you belong to the living church and you go to heaven to be with Christ forever, you will be spiritually, not physically, spiritually married to Christ and you will express the love of a bride toward her husband. Your engagement in this life to Jesus Christ will be turned into a perfect heavenly glorious union, marital union with him in heaven. And that often is taught in the Bible. You can find it in Psalm 45, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Matthew 9, Matthew 25, John 3, 2 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, and sprinkled throughout the book of Revelation. Apexing. In my text this morning, Revelation 19, 6 through 9. And so I want to speak of, with you about glorified humanity in this marital relationship with Jesus Christ in glory. And I have three simple thoughts. The wedding. The bridegroom. The bride, the wedding, the bridegroom, the bride. Presently, if you're a believer, the church is betrothed and waiting for her wedding day. Now, there's a substantial difference between betrothal or espousal, as the King James has it, and engagement. You might say, in Bible times, when people got what we would call engaged, that was a very strong engagement. Today, if you get engaged to someone and you find some terrible things out while you're engaged, it's painful, but you can break the relationship. And when you break the relationship, uh, you don't have to get a divorce. You're not married yet. And, well, it's painful, but your life goes on and you say it's better, better not to go forward than to marry the wrong person. In Bible times, if you were espoused to someone or betrothed to someone, it was in a sense like you were husband and wife, but the marriage was not yet consummated because to break it, you actually had to sue out a, a divorce. Mary and Joseph, for example, were espoused or, or betrothed. And Joseph was shocked, of course, to discover that Mary was pregnant. The angel even called her his wife. But as Joseph was debating whether he should break off that betrothal, minded perhaps to put her away privately, the Bible says, the angel came and said, no, no, the child that is in her womb shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. No doubt Joseph didn't understand it all. But the angel was telling him between the lines, Mary has not been unfaithful to you. And you see, this betrothal, this espousal in Bible times would be very, very strong, and then it would lead up to the wedding day and at the wedding day, the bride and groom, of course, would both get dressed in their fine clothing, Isaiah 61, 10. And then the bridegroom would come to, let, to, to, to the bride's home to get her and her friends and take them to her new home. And they would feast and celebrate. Talk about a long wedding reception. In Bible times, the receptions usually lasted a week. They really 
celebrated the, the actual capstone of this wedding that they were really now married and could enter into the physical and spiritual intimacy of marriage in Christ. Now, again and again, the Bible says all true believers are espoused or betrothed to Christ. Paul says, for example, 2 Corinthians 11, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you. Think, you are, I have strongly brought you into a strong engagement to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul casts himself in the role of the marriage broker, the matchmaker, and in his love for Christ, he desires to present him with a chaste virgin bride. And he's resentful against any preacher, any of these smooth oratorical Corinthian preachers that want to lead the bride astray into one form of spiritual adultery or another. Now, Paul is not just preaching here a set of abstract truths. He's not just presenting people with some philosophy. He's proclaiming the person of Christ. And through his preaching, he's presenting that person to the congregation. I have betrothed you to Christ, he says. You are committed. You are engaged to be his. That's the church on earth. Samuel Stone says it poetically so beautifully in his hymn. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. You see, in Bible times you had to pay a dowry price. Jesus' dowry price is his own blood. Christ has paid the bride price for all true believers. And therefore, all that the Father has given to him shall come to him through his blood. And when we are in Christ, united with Christ by his blood, we are legally and inalienably his. And you, dear believer, are in a sense his bride. He's coming again for you, the living church, to lead you, from the militant church to the triumphant church to lead you home to his father's house where he will present you spotless, spotless, think of it, before his holy father in heaven, washed and cleansed by the blood of the lamb, having come out of great tribulation. And there, there will be a wedding procession and festivities that won't last just for a week or two but for all eternity. We will be with Christ forever. It will be like an unending wedding, beholding his glory. You see, the, the, the story of salvation is actually a love story. The covenant of grace is a marriage contract. Before the worlds were made, God the Father chose a bride for his son, drew up a marriage contract between them. And this wedding... This wedding involves more choice than mutual attraction. God gave us to Christ from eternity past. And Christ came to buy us at Calvary, to pay the dowry price to his father, and to take us as his own through the preaching of the gospel. And he's coming back for you, dear believer. He's coming back for you to bring you to where he is, to enjoy holy intimacy, marital union, fellowship with him forever. Now, to be sure, the whole Trinity is involved in this marriage. The Father gives us his Son as our bridegroom and gives us as a bride to the Son, John 3. Christ purchases us as his bride with his blood and death, Ephesians 5. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as an earnest or guarantee that that marriage will come, Ephesians 1. And that guarantee in ancient times was shown by a down payment. Today we call it an engagement ring. And so when Christ betroths us to himself, he gives the Spirit to us, once we're born again, to indwell us as a kind of engagement ring 
that guarantees that we shall arrive at the last day for the actual wedding. And Christ will not break off that relationship. There'll be no breakup of any betrothal, any espousal. He will bring his saints all the way to glory. There will be no empty chairs in heaven. Well, James Hamilton puts it so well. He says, we can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom than Jesus Christ. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride than Jesus Christ. Never has a more wealthy father planned a bigger feast than the feast of this eternal wedding. Never has a more powerful pledge been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to this bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Great will be the rejoicing, says our text, Revelation 19.6. Great will be the exaltation. Hallelujah, the marriage of the Lamb is coming. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. The best marriage ever. The greatest wedding ever. Hallelujah. But this wedding is all about the bridegroom and the bride, but especially the bridegroom. So that's my second thought. Let's look at the bridegroom. The term marriage of the lamb may seem a bit strange to you because lambs don't get married. But Jesus is presented here, you see, in the capacity as Savior. You need to remember, you need to remember the kind of genre that the book of Revelation is, apocalyptic literature. Too many people try to take too many things in Revelation literally. Jesus is not physically a lamb. A lamb is a picture. A pure lamb is a picture of who he is in his purity and in his willingness to sacrifice himself for his bride. So, when it comes to this picture, I want to say a word to, to men first and then to women. We men need not feel uncomfortable when we're called the bride of Christ. In our day, when there are so many sexual issues, we may even feel a little queasy about being called the bride of Christ. But you need to remember this is a bridegroom bride, not in a sexual way, but the language bridegroom bride is used of Christ, being married to Christ, in order to convey the reality that our relationship with Christ, our perfect relationship with Christ in heaven, will be more intimate than the most intimate marriage on earth. It will, be a, it will be a relationship of ecstasy, of joy, of intimate communion. Not in a physical sexuality, but in a spiritual oneness of union. So don't feel uncomfortable with that language any more than you women should feel uncomfortable being called the adopted sons of God. Now we often add, don't we, adopted sons and daughters of God, but the Bible never says daughters of God because women are naturally included. This is saying the adopted people of God, and the sex is not the issue here. And so we need to think of this marital union as something that Jesus has with every single believer without allowing us to get sidetracked in all the sexual issues of our day. The marriage of the Lamb is come. Already, Jesus is called the Lamb in the book of Revelation back in chapter 5, and we're told there that he is worthy to take the book to open the seals, for he was slain and has redeemed us as that Lamb of God by his blood, a people out of every kindred and tongue and nation. And so this 
This love affair is a very one-sided affair to begin with because it comes from the side of Jesus. John says we love him because he first loved us. Now, when we think of the ideal marriage, what do we think of? Well, we probably think in a Western way. We think of two lovers gazing into each other's eyes, starry-eyed with love. But it's different in many other parts of the world. There, the parents of a bride often decide when she is to marry. In some cultures, the bride has no say in the matter at all. She may not even know who her husband will be. She may not even meet him until the day of they're married. But she learns to love her husband, and she, he learns to love her in the marital relationship. Today, all the stress is about the romance and becoming very loving. We're in the, we're in the opposite extreme. And then after you're married, many, many times the love cools uh, almost right away. But you see, in the ancient cultures, a marriage was all about loving each other in the marriage and growing in that love. You need to picture that now with me as we talk about this ultimate eternal union with Christ. One example, of course, is Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca said, I will go. I will go. I will go and be married to Isaac, though I've never seen him. And you see, in some ways, that's the kind of marriage we have with Christ. We love him, but we only love him because he loved us first. And he loved us while we were sinners and were utterly unattractive and undeserving. The prophet Hosea provides us with a powerful example of this love. I'm not going to get into the issue of whether this is literally true or, or, or figuratively true. But God said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. That's what happened. As an adulteress, Gomer had a succession of affairs, and when her youth and attractiveness were spent, she ended up in the slave market. But Hosea found Gomer in the slave market and bought her back, not to exact revenge on her for the rest of her life, but out of sheer love for her, a faithful husband to her, despite her unfaithfulness to him. And you see, dear believer, that is the kind of love that Christ has for you. While your carnal mind was still at enmity with him, he saw you. He captured you. He determined to win you over. He made you willing in the day of his power. While you were yet sinners... While you were yet unclean, Paul is saying, and unfaithful and promiscuous, he loved you. And having loved you, having loved you as his own in the world, he loved you to the end. He loved you to the end not only of your life, or will love you to the end of your life, but he loves you to the farthest limits of his love. Paul says we cannot measure the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God. It surpasses all knowledge. Jesus Christ loves you, dear believer, beyond your wildest imagination. He loves you all the way to the cross of Calvary. He loves you every moment. He sits at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. He has the capacity not just to intercede for all his people as one corporate whole, but he's infinite. He intercedes for every single one of his children at every single moment. We don't understand how he does that. He's infinite. But he's interceding for you. He's interceding for me right now, right now, right now, right now. I'm in his hands. He's my bridegroom who will care for me who will love me, who will ever love me, who cancels out all my debts of sin, who draws me to himself, who feeds me with life everlasting in him. He's the perfect bridegroom. My sins become his sins. His righteousness becomes mine through faith. 
through true saving faith, worked by the Holy Spirit in your soul, all your sins are imputed to him. And all his double obedience, his righteousness, passive, active, is imputed to us. He's our bridegroom. He's the perfect match. He's exactly what you need to be your savior, your treasure, and your husband. Edward Pierce, the Puritan, has a wonderful book called The Best Match. It's between Christ and the bride. Do you want a match, he says, who has honor and greatness? He is God and man, the brightness of his Father's glory, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you want riches and treasures? Well, Christ's riches are the best. They last forever. They're infinitely great. He'll satisfy all your desires. Are you looking for a generous heart in a spouse? Well, he's willing to lay out his riches for his spouse that your, that your joy may be full. Do you want wisdom and knowledge? He's wisdom par excellence, capital W. Wisdom itself, and he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Are you looking for beauty? He is altogether lovely, more than all the beauty of human beings and angels combined. Are you seeking someone who will truly love you? He is love itself, love that is higher than the heavens, deeper than the seas. Do you want a husband who's honored and esteemed? He's loved and adored by saints and angels. Everyone whose opinion really matters treasures him. And God the Father delights in him. Do you seek a match who will never die, never leave you a widow? Christ is a king eternal and immortal. He is the resurrection and the life. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the bridegroom. Do you know him? Do you know him now? Do you know Christ as your lamb? Have you received him as your heavenly husband? Have you come to him repenting of your sin, throwing yourself as a hell-worthy sinner on his mercy? Will you have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, as we heard yesterday, to be your Savior, to love and honor and obey from this day forth and forevermore? Will you have the Lamb of God to be your husband, to be your sin-bearer, your sin-bearer, to be your bridegroom? If you will have him, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if you refuse him, you refuse his offer to give himself to you, you will not have him at all. And dreadful, dreadful will it be on the judgment day to fall into the hands of the living God unprepared. Is Jesus Christ your Savior, your Lord, your treasure here? If so, he will be your bridegroom forever in glory. But our text also speaks about the bride. Let us be glad and rejoice, verse 7 says, and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The bride asks the question, as most brides do still today, what shall I wear? I can remember our first daughter was very concerned when she got married. She wanted the right dress to please her husband. And she couldn't wait for the wedding. She had everything checked off. You know those checklists for, for brides? It was all done. This needs to be done three months ahead of time. She had it done four months ahead of time. She couldn't wait for the wedding. And you see, this is the way it is spiritually with the believer, ought to be at least, when you're not backsliding, when you're living close to your bridegroom. You're longing for your wedding day. Paul speaks of that, doesn't he, in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And notice this, not to me only. Then he throws, throws it open to the entire church. But unto all them also that love his appearing. If you love his appearing, if you're a looker for Christ, as Hebrews 9 puts it, you look for him in the Bible. You look for him in the church worship service. You look for him in the fellowship of the saints. You, you, you're... 
You're longing for him. You're longing to know him better. You see, then you're, then you're looking forward to your wedding day with anticipation, like this bride in Revelation 19. Today we're so earthbound, even many Christians seem to want to stay here as long as possible. And we forget that we're going to a much better place. The best is yet to be. Spurgeon said, God's people have the best of both worlds. They got true joy in this life the world knows not of in their union with Christ and communion with him. And they've got the perfect joy that is awaiting them. Spurgeon also said, when a believer gets up every morning, he ought to go to the east side of his home and pull up the shade and look out the window and say, oh, he's not coming yet today. John Calvin said, he who does not hanker, hanker is a strong word, he who does not hanker for the second coming of Christ has made little progress in the Christian life. You see, our tent stakes are too deep in this earth's soil. We're too materialistic. We're too centered upon the things we see in the here and now. But we ought to be longing to be married with Christ forever in glory. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, said, Jesus Christ is the King of heaven, and the King greatly desires you, his bride, for you will be lovely in his sight. The King of kings will make you his queen. He who rules over the whole universe will make us the queen of heaven. The angels will be our servants. The king will take us by the hand and lead us to paradise, his own personal garden, where we will live with him forever. You see, everything is better in heaven. Everything is more intimate with Christ in heaven. What a, what a day that will be. We will gaze, gaze upon his face. Old Testament says, no man shall see his face and live Revelation 19 says, we will gaze upon his face. The day's coming, dear believer, where you won't have to say with Samuel Rutherford anymore, I just get blinks and glances of my Savior here. But you'll be able to gaze upon him, whom your soul loves. We had a couple Nigerian students in our school, we've got uh, 265 students right now at the moment. Exactly half of them are from 21 countries around the world. The other half are from North America. We've got a contingency of Nigerian students. And two of them came into my uh, office one day. And the third-year student wanted to introduce the first-year student who had just come the day before. And when he introduced him to me, this, that student looked at me like this. And it, it's very uncomfortable. It, and the other student noticed it. And he said, no, no, no. No, you're in America now, he said to the student. In Nigeria, it's an insult to look your professor in the face. In America, it's an insult not to look him in the face. So the guy tried to look at me a bit longer. And he goes... Maybe got a half a second in instead of a sixteenth of a second. But he just couldn't get used to the idea that he could just look me full in the face. And you see, when we get to glory, every sin will be so completely wiped away and we will be so holy, as holy as Christ is holy. We will have no shame of any kind. We'll never have to feel like we have to break eye contact with him. We will gaze upon his face. The bride will ever have Christ in view. Christ is pictured as a lamb sitting on the, on the throne with all the redeemed around him, visible to all. You will have your full of Christ on that day. You will gaze upon him. And as you gaze upon him, you'll be clothed in fine white linen. Brides, of course, here in this life also, at least in our culture, often wear the white, don't they? And uh, their gown is very important. Our youngest daughter, who, by the way, I need to tell you, when we first began this conference, I made some comment that I didn't have just, we didn't have four grandchildren, but we had ten. 
What I couldn't tell you the first morning was that just one hour before we came here, we got word that our youngest daughter, who lives in Alberta, her husband's a, a newly ordained minister there, just had a baby. So, Ezra, Ezra Martin. So it was wonderful. But I couldn't tell you because we, we, you know, she said, don't tell anybody yet. I told all the other relatives. So now I can tell you. <laughs> but this youngest daughter worked in a, in a bridal gown shop. And one day, a lady walked in and said, my husband has terminal cancer and I want to renew my vows with him, but I can't fit into my old wedding dress. Is it possible you could just give, give me some dress I could have? And well, my daughter says, I don't own the shop. I can't do that. The lady walked away. My da daughter is feeling bad. And suddenly she went after the lady and she caught up with her in the mall and she said, I can, I'll tell you what to do. You go buy a dress at a thrift shop for, for $20 and bring it to me and I will fix it up with the decorations and so, and I'm also a seamstress. I'll make it fit you perfectly, and you can have your wish. And the lady brightened up, and she went out, and she bought a dress for $20, brought it to my daughter. My daughter worked on it for about a week or two weeks, made it just perfect, and it happened. There was a happy end to the story. They renewed their vows, and shortly after that, her husband went to be, we trust, with the Lord. But you see, with this wedding gown, Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Doesn't cost $20. It's free. Cost Jesus his life. But it's free. And he fits it to you. It's a perfect fit for every believer. His righteousness fits my unrighteousness. His righteousness trumps my unrighteousness. My unrighteousness is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to me. This is a glorious, glorious gown of righteousness that symbolizes my imputed justification in Jesus. His obedience accredited to me as if I had never sinned. At the same time, and this is fascinating, at the same time, in the original Greek, verse 8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Literally, the Greek text says, the righteous deeds of the saints. So here you have a righteousness given to the bride, but that righteousness bears fruit in righteous deeds. Justification produces sanctification. And in verse 7 we read, the wife has made herself ready. You see, the person who says he belongs or she belongs to Christ and never yet, yet never lifts a finger to purify himself or herself, said J.C. Ryle, is deceived. The Christian life means getting ready. It means putting off the old man and putting on the new man. But at the same time, Notice this, the righteousness of the saints, symbolized by the fine linen, clean and white, is given, given to the bride to wear. So even though you and I ought to be heavily involved in the business of our own sanctification, co-laboring with the Holy Spirit in it and at it and for it, yet at the same time, sanctification is all of grace. Without the Holy Spirit, you'd have none of it. So the Lord reigns over his prepared bride. He makes her willing in the day of his power. And verse 6 puts it this way, Therefore, praise God for the totality of your salvation. Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And so Jesus reigns over every part of our salvation. Also our sanctification. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her, Ephesians 5, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to the Father as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What a glorious Savior we have. 
It's all gracious. See, grace alone, by Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. What a wedding. What a bridegroom. What a bride. By the grace of God. Forever feasting in his presence. Forever bathing in his smile. Forever knowing him, enjoying him, communing with him. What the medieval theologians called the beatific vision will be everlasting reality in heaven. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. That's heaven. That's glorified humanity, wedded to Christ forever and ever. Well, that leads me to a couple conclusions. The first is this. Jesus Christ sends you an RSVP right now. Will you go with this man? You're invited to the wedding. You're invited to come to Christ with all your sins, all your needs. RSVP. What will you say? This glorious Savior. Will you say with Rebecca, I will go? Or will you say, I'll go my own way. I'll destroy my own life, destroy my own soul. I'll go to hell. You can have your righteousness and go to hell because your righteousness is filthy, ragged unrighteousness. Or you can have his righteousness and go to heaven and be married to the Lamb of God. Once there was a shepherd boy in northern Scotland who bedded down his sheep one night. There was a ferocious storm that came through that valley and there was a viaduct going across between two hills across the valley and the entire viaduct crashed that night in the storm. The track, the train track was just laying in the valley. And when morning came, the shepherd boy ran up the embankment, got to the train that was coming in time and waved to the conductor to stop. And the conductor just waved him away, and the boy threw himself across the track. The conductor slammed on his brakes, ran over the boy, and stopped just in time before the train went down into the valley. People jumped out of the train. They ran to the edge of the valley. They looked down. They saw the mangled track. They saw the mangled remains of the shepherd boy, and it was very quiet. No one said a word. Until finally an old man spoke. He said, that that boy there, that boy there, he saved my life. My dear friend, if Christ is not your Savior up to this moment, if he's not your number one, if he's not your treasure, your Lord, your all and in all, you need to stop the train of your life. You need to consider your ways. He throws himself across your track through his death on Calvary. And he invites you with his open arms, even on the cross, to come to him just as he is. Don't dare to rest. Don't dare to live another day until you can point to him on the cross and say, that God man there, that God man there, he saved my life. Well, let me close with a second illustration for you who are believers. We live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Gerald Ford was born, the former president, where he has his museum, and where he wanted to be buried. Grand Rapidians, a little bit proud of Gerald Ford, I suppose, and when he died, out of respect for him, Thousands of people stood on both sides of the highway as the hearse went from the airport to the Ford Museum. Our family was there too. But on the other side of the highway, boys and girls, there was a little boy 
with a big sign, and he was waving it over his head. He was happy. The sign was bigger than he was. And the sign just read, Welcome home, President Ford. And I thought to myself, isn't that amazing? A boy is happy to welcome home a dead body. But you see, one day, very soon, sooner than you think, the Lord will come in the clouds. And we will all come into his presence. And if we've been united with Christ here by faith, on that day, we shall walk that highway into the celestial gates of glory. And on both sides of the highway will be tens of thousands, at times ten thousands of holy saints and angels made perfect. And they shall cry out, Welcome home, welcome home, sinner, saved by grace. And the gates, the gates of heaven will go open. And we will be able to enter in through the blood of Christ. You will enter in to be with him, married to the Lamb of God forever and ever. So run the race to the end. Looking unto Jesus, laying aside sin, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, knowing that he, for the joy that was set before him, having you in glory with him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I wish you a blessed marriage to Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Lord God, we ask thy benediction upon this talk. We pray that this sermon will be used to encourage thy people to lift them up, but also to arrest those who are yet living without the greatest Savior, the only Savior, the exclusive Savior that we need for this life and a better one to come. Help us to fly to Jesus 10,000 times in our life, every day to take refuge in him and one day to be with him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.